I'm happy to, Andrew, and thanks again for having me today. Yeah, no problem. I think that that's a perfect place to just jump into just jump into this conversation. Um, so let, let's people might not know you, Owen. Surprisingly, so let's uh, let's let's take them through a little bit of of who you are and and what it is that you do that would precede this conversation um, about invasive species. All right. Well, again, Andrew, thanks for having me back at you, and uh, I'm just really honored to be here this evening and. I'm happy to see we're both busy with our uh, respective passions and we're making things happen. So thanks again for having me. So um, you've already said it. My name is Owen Bjorgen. I am a Niagara-on-the-Lake local. So um, I grew up here in Niagara-on-the-Lake. I then found myself later in life um, up at the University of Guelph where I met you. Um, so here's a shout out to our bartending days years ago. Um, it's funny how things come full circle. So at the University of Guelph, I got my Bachelor of Science in Biodiversity. Um, and then with that degree, um, I decided that after all that hard work and all that, you know, all those exciting times at the University of Guelph and all that networking, I thought I really want to make this count, um, not just for myself, but in a bigger picture for um, my community and the environment at large. So with my biodiversity degree, um, it fast forward, I'm now uh, operating a hiking tour company here in Niagara. I've been operating it for four years since I've been out of the University of Guelph. And um, that's called Owens Hiking and Adventures. I think it uh, kind of just sums up what I do in my spare time anyways. And I wanted to turn that um, spare time hobby and passion into a career where I can inspire others. So I'm a hiking tour guide in Niagara. Um, I also write a weekly nature column for the Niagara on the Lake local where I try to just kind of get um, people excited about current events in the community and at large that are environmentally related. Um, and I also work uh, full-time for the Niagara District School Board as an outdoor educator or an outdoor guide, as we call it there. So my time outdoors is seven days a week. Um, that's why last time we caught up, Andrew, we were out in the trails on one of my hiking tours. Um, thanks again to you and Morgan for coming out with me for that. and. Uh, that's me in a nutshell. I'm outdoorsy um, and here I am sitting virtually talking about the outdoors with you. Life's good. That's so that's such a good synopsis, man. Um, you have a you have a way of stringing together uh, stories that is um, it's admirable as somebody who's a bit of a storyteller myself. So, uh, yeah, I, we Morgan and I, my my wife, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, we had our anniversary locally. Uh, last summer in August because well, obviously we couldn't go anywhere but we knew this cool guy down in Niagara who's giving out tours so um, you know we like to consider ourselves to be a bit outdoorsy as well and it was somewhere close that we can still kind of have an anniversary and, and go somewhere and we did one of your tours and um, and we liked it so much that she actually bought it as a gift for her parents to do this summer when they go down to Niagara Cause I th and I yeah. think the one that that she bought was um um, the, the wine tour. So, uh, you know, you, you do that as well, which I'm sure uh, would, would be very entertaining for, for people listening. Absolutely. Yeah. Just to kind of sum it up in a nutshell, um, that's just one of the many tours they offer. It's the one that does involve wine or any sort of uh, local alcohol. And here we are in Niagara region known for, uh, you know, having our vineyards, which produce these beautiful wines that are world-class. And I thought, Literally millions of people come to Niagara um, every, every year, um, pre-COVID that is, uh, to taste our beautiful wines, which are grown out of the very landscape that I run nature hiking tours on. So there's definitely a relationship between nature and wine. 
And I thought that that would just be one kind of avenue to get people excited about the outdoors. It may take a glass of wine to do so, but hey, who's going to argue that, right? You got a lot of fans there, man. That's 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 awesome. Um, so I, we're going to get into a conversation about in invasive species, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, being that it's, it's Invasive Species Awareness Week here in Ontario, which, um, you know, was one of the reasons why we're speaking today. Not that I really need a reason to chat with you, but it seemed like a good one. Um, so, but, but for, before I go there, I want to talk about these amazing documentaries that you've put together uh, called Hidden Corners. Um, can you share the, 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 the premise of these documentaries with the audience and, and where they might be able to find them? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Um, Hidden Corners was kind of an idea that was stirring up, funny enough, actually during the University of Guelph days when we were both there in our uh, respective studies. Um, And I thought to myself, you know, I've already had this kind of hobby and passion for photography and filming. Um, The camera started coming outdoors with me because I found myself outdoors more than indoors. Um, And I I thought what you mentioned earlier, funnily enough, that uh, photography and filming is an excellent storytelling tool. Um, and if I was to be serious about how I could best offer, you know, storytelling about the natural world to get people excited about biodiversity, conservation, um, et cetera, then I thought that was a great avenue to do it. So um, next thing you knew it, I thought of the hidden corners and it literally came literally um, right here in Niagara region where I'd come back from Guelph on my weekends and holidays. I was hiking in my hometown, Niagara Escarpment areas, um, wetlands, the beaches, and of course our Carolinian forest um, in Southern Ontario. We live in the most species rich area of the country. So that was my backyard in Niagara, which was pretty awesome. And I started finding hidden corners and I thought there's the title. Um, So I made a nature documentary called Hidden Corners Niagara, which showcases just that. And the whole concept was to sort of go to the lesser explored, lesser studied, and perhaps even lesser appreciated areas um, of natural significance and kind of show people nature in their backyard in a very different way and angle. Um, and on that note, um, you know, me as well, you know, off camera, off interview, whatnot, I'm pretty laid back and easygoing. So with the conservation message was also a community and camaraderie message where I brought my friends and my family and other experts out on these adventures with me. Um, when I traveled for Hidden Corners later to Ecuador, Florida, and Australia, I was really fortunate to team up with uh, not just locals and friends there, but the indigenous and local biologists. And next thing you know it, we're exploring hidden corners in other areas of the world. The whole idea being, um, look what's here in your backyard. You may have not considered this. How can we get people psyched up about conservation? One of my favorite things about the, the, the time that we live in, I mean, not specifically, I'm not talking about COVID or anything, but just this, this era that we're alive in is the uh, democratization of, of technology in a way. So like, you know, you as this just random guy who has a hobby um, can pick up a camera for relatively inexpensive. You can book a plane to anywhere in the world for, again, it's relatively inexpensive. And you can create these documentaries that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago would have been million dollar productions with just like you'd have to have the, the most high like access to National Geographic or something like that in order to, to experience this in a way that you could broadcast it to the world. And then, you know, here you here you are um, being able to do this with a handheld camera. So that's that's super cool. Where can people find these videos, these documentaries? Thanks, Andrew. 
Yeah, these videos are available for free and online on the uh, wonderful world of YouTube. Um, my YouTube channel is literally called the same thing as my business, Owens Hiking and Adventures. Um, and that's also where I post my nature documentaries. And again, they're full length. They're up to an hour long-ish, more so each. And they're there for uh, your inspiration. And if you're looking for something to do during, uh, again, the COVID era, or maybe we're spending a little bit more time on screens, um, all of us included, here we are. Um, that might be something worth uh, checking out and hopefully it's exciting and uh, worth to you. So, so thanks for mentioning that, Andrew. That's what those videos are there for. They're for getting people excited about the natural world around them. Yeah, they're, they're, they're cool. And you, uh, you, you eat up being in front of the camera. So I, I, I like it. Your personality comes through. Um, so yeah, check those out. <clears throat> um, so did you have a moment in your life where you knew that you wanted to be a, an outdoorsman, let's call it, or like, was there any one person that was an inspiration to you that led you down that path? You know what, Andrew, I honestly, I wouldn't say it would be a moment, but rather a cumulative series of events. And I got to thank my backyard again, Niagara region, and more specifically the Niagara escarpment. So we're talking about a UNESCO world listed uh, feature right here in Southern Ontario. Um, this Niagara escarpment has rock layers that are upwards of 420 million years old in it um, and it contains our most um, protected and most biodiverse forests in the country at least what remains of them um, and that was very fortunate to me uh, my backyard um, so every day whether it was waiting for the school bus at the front yard or walking out of the back patio and down the slopes of the escarpment or you know going down to the creek with my parents or my neighborhood buddies when I was a little kid there was literally wildlife and biodiversity and this sense of wonder and later exploration everywhere. Um, so I, you can almost figuratively say I started crawling on the escarpment and later I ran, jogged, studied, and now I'm very fortunate to run tours on it as well. So I think it's the backyard more than a moment, but I also have to give a shout out to my parents, Andrew, um, because uh, they are both so outdoorsy, let alone wonderful people in their, their own ways. But I think I got this kind of dichotomy of the best of both worlds where my mom is very uh, sentient, and very soft with nature. She's very appreciative of it in a spiritual kind of sense, of course, with an understanding of how nature works, growing up with farms, the outdoors, being a very avid and strong hiker um, as well. Um, so that's, that was definitely passed along to me. So she was that softer, more sort of beauty and uh, you know spiritual appreciation of nature side. And my dad had that in him too, of course, but he was kind of that classic Canadian dad that I was um, really lucky to have growing up who took you on fishing trips um, and brought you up north to rickety old cabins. And, uh, you know, I remember him and I getting a fishing hook stuck on a tree stump out in the lake. And as we're going to unhook the uh, fishing lure, a swarm of uh, hornets came out at us and we're floating around together, father and son, fighting off the hornets. Of course, you can imagine there'd be no swearing involved in that. But, you know, between those two worlds um, and the world of my own backyard, I think that's why I ended up being the outdoorsy route, Andrew. Um, you know, as a, as a father to be, it, uh, it really hammers home that whole like monkey see monkey do, right. It's not yeah. so much about what you say. It's about how you act and, and largely, you know, people, including your, your children are going to forget what you say, but what they are going to remember is how, like, what were the actions of that person? Um, and, and those are instilled 
to the hundredth degree more than, than words will. So it's great that you had that, uh, that tutelage um, at home and you had such great access to this incredibly diverse landscape to explore as well. It's like the perfect combination. So that's really great. I, I, I never heard you talk about that. So thanks for the insight. Um, like I said uh, earlier on, we're in the, we're in the middle of the invasive species week in Ontario. And um, so Ontario has this awareness program and it breaks um, invasive species down to five categories. So the, the categories are fish, aquatic plants, invertebrate, terrestrial plants, and forest pests and pathogens. Okay. Could you give some examples of invasive species that you come across um, in your tours of, of Niagara or, or around Ontario more broadly? Absolutely, Andrew. Uh, uh... I'm happy, but not so happy to report the prevalence of these invasive species because unfortunately in Southern Ontario, even though that we're in the most located, sorry, in the most biodiverse region of the country, um, our remaining habitats, be it forests, wetlands, shoreline areas, et cetera, they're at the risk of being colonized by invasive species um, in any given year now. Um, so where do we begin with this? On my tours, um, Again, unfortunately, it's pretty easy even just to think off the top of my head what stands out. First one that comes to mind is Phragmites, also known as the European common reed. Um, perhaps some of your listeners and yourself uh, have heard of Phragmites. There are even signs about Phragmites when you drive north of Toronto on the various 400 series highways, because that is, generally speaking, the, the tall six to even 15 foot um, golden stalks with the feathery heads that you see growing in those sort of uh, divides between the highway lanes, right? Um, we've all seen Phragmites. In fact, I would bet say that if you live in Southern Ontario, you see it almost every day on the way to work and you might not know what it is, but it's one of the most prevalent uh, invasive species in Ontario. It uh, came from the Eurasia area, notably they say around the Black Sea. Now, as you'll hear me discuss perhaps later, um, a lot of our invasive species come from Asia and Europe, which we will call Eurasia. And that's not a mistake or a coincidence. Uh, that's because if you think about it, we sit in that same northern kind of latitude, the same distance north of the equator very generally. So we have kind of similar climates and biomes where species live. So what happens is when you get an invasive species from Asia or Europe that comes over to North America, um, they find the, this little slot in the system and they say, hey, um, this is a niche that hasn't been accomplished yet. Um, I can set my foot in here, I can invade, I can reproduce without my usual predators back at home because this system doesn't know how to handle me. That's kind of the thinking of an invasive species, if you will. Um, not that they think per se, they're just here and reproducing and doing their things given the, uh, the, the situations and agreeable climate that they're in. So Phragmites um, is one of the classic case in points. It came from the Eurasia area. Now it's here and it is a major, uh, like just, absolute threat to anything wetland and freshwater related. And as we both know, Southern Ontario and Canada as a whole um, thrives on freshwater economically, recreationally, um, ecologically, et cetera. So freshwater is a pretty important resource and Phragmites can clog up our creeks, our marshes, our shoreline areas. They replace the local biodiversity of typical wetland plants that you'd normally find there. And they can grow so aggressively and so densely that they can simply outcrowd our local wetland plants that should be there. Therefore, reducing biodiversity for the whole area. 
And uh, the way food chains work is when you start to eliminate plants from the bottom of that food, that food chain, if you will, then you're eliminating, eliminating the biodiversity above that that wants to eat those plants. And then they're running out of their food resources and the species above that are running out of their resources. So Phragmites is a big problem. It's also an economic problem too, depending on what scope you look at it in Ontario. It's not an exaggeration to say that it costs uh, millions in terms of infrastructure damage every year. And that's because of how it can clog up shorelines, reduce beach and shoreline access. Um, it can reduce access to important infrastructure by clogging it up with the actual debris or how densely it grows in front of it. It's just a super aggressive plant. Oh, and fun fact, its roots can spread subterranean outside of water areas to drier land and then create these shoots that pop up elsewhere. And while it's doing that, the roots are actually chemically changing the composition of the soil to make it less agreeable for a native species to grow on. So, wow, I kind of rambled about Phragmites there, but uh, I'm passionate about it or against it, you could almost say, because it doesn't belong here. Um, and it's from Eurasia and it's really just taken a hold here and it affects our biodiversity and infrastructure. So that's, that's one. Yeah, and if I could just uh, interject there for a sec, I, I never considered <clears throat> that we would have a higher propensity of like invasive species, say from a northern climate, um, in other parts of the world. Like you never, it never occurred to me that you don't hear of like an invasive species from Peru, or you know Brazil or something mm -hmm. or South Africa. Um, and uh, I, I had no idea that. I, again, I just didn't make the connection that well, they're on a totally different plane, let's say. Um, and, and so they wouldn't take root here, so to speak, as easily as something from a similar plane, but maybe on the other side of, of the world. Exactly, Andrew. That's, you know, it's an observation that kind of comes to light once you see those connections where, uh, you know, you look at the different biomes again. So a biome is a region where certain species live based on the climate. And of course, even to take your example, the tropics um, and high mountains of Peru are nothing like what we have here in Canada. So it's very unlikely, not impossible, but very unlikely we would ever see invasive species from countries like that. And that's why most of them, again, are Eurasian in nature. And another one that comes to mind also, um, if you wanna talk about ones that I see in my tour frequently, we definitely talked about this on the tour with yourself and your wife, Morgan. Um, we gotta look at the emerald ash borer. This is another one that, again, if you live in Southern Ontario, like Phragmites, <clears throat> excuse me, You've definitely seen this, um, and that's just when you're driving along, even perhaps in the middle of our lush, green Southern Ontario summer, and you look at a woodlot, and most of the trees standing up and it appear dead. Odds are very high that those are all our standing species of ash trees. Here in Niagara, for example, we have four species of ash tree present. Um, they're all literally hanging on statistically for their lives, and that's because um, emerald ash borer came to southern Ontario, they think around 2002, so pretty recent in the big scheme of things, less than 20 years ago, Andrew, and um, so within our lifetime, our four native species of ash tree, which added to a lot of biodiversity in our forests, let alone biomass, so the actual amount of trees in our woodlots are ash trees. Um, they're a huge component of that crowd. And then we have emerald ash borer come in, which is this pretty little green beetle, um, less than an inch long. It's part of the Buprestidae beetle family in Asia. It's shiny, it's green, it's metallic. It looks, again, quite pretty. Its effects are devastating, though, when its eggs, which are placed under the bark of ash trees specifically, decide to hatch. And those little grubs or worms 
if you will, the larvae, they start to chew their way out in these tunnels. And then when they emerge as adults at that point, the tree circulation is cut off, Andrew. And uh, we talked about that in my tour for sure, because sadly, no matter where you run a tour of the dozen or so spots in Niagara, there are ash trees and there are dead ash trees I can show the damage to uh, with my hikers. So that's a really devastating one for biodiversity too. Um, so I, I had an experience this, this past summer with, um, with an invasive species, um, namely, I always forget that the name always escapes me. I think it's like the Chinese mystery snail or okay. I could be getting that wrong. It's like, it, it, okay, so it looks like um, the poop emoji. Oh, awesome. I'm surprised I haven't heard about this then or something. So, Oh man, hey. it's, yeah, I, I, I got to- uh, Got to down, Andrew. Yeah, it's, oh, I, this is going to drive me insane. I'm actually going to look it up. Um, not the poo part per se, but the Chinese no, snail. yeah. So it, that's literally what it's called. It's it's the the Chinese uh, mystery snail. It's a black snail or a trapdoor snail. Okay. Um. So, anyway, uh, apparently that is an invasive species, and I downloaded this app, um, that you can like, uh, put a geotag, let's say, on the location in which you found them, and the suggestion through this app, which is um, based out of Ontario, I'm almost certain. It could even be Guelph from the U of G that, that might have started it or been a part of it. But anyway, uh, was to remove them from, from the river if you, if you come across them okay. um, and like, get them far away from the water because there's the possibility that they can obviously go back into the water. Um, and they have a very, they're very fertile, put it that way. Um, so it, it, was, it was neat. I got to go into the Speed River, which is just outside our, my door of my apartment here. Um, and I put on my water shoes and I just like walked up and down the river and picked these things out and put them in a bucket. And um, it was, a, it was, a, and then by doing that, I actually ran into a whole bunch of other wildlife and, you know, you start seeing frogs and then you start yeah. seeing snakes and then you start seeing like, Oh, you know, a fish swims by you and you're like, well, I wonder what that fish was. So I actually use it as an opportunity to get outside and by kind of trying to eradicate this little tiny area as best as I could of something. Um, I also learned about a bunch of other things as well, which was a really, a really neat experience that, that for some reason it just took hold of me. It's amazing what kind of avenues in nature, whether it's even the discovery of an invasive species in this case can bring you closer to nature, right? Um, and, and perhaps that's why it's important. And I'm grateful that we're having this discussion today, Andrew, is that, uh, you know, we need to talk about these things because perhaps it takes a kind of startling or interesting story about the nature of these species and what they do to our environment and therefore to us as a community. Um, and people need to hear about that sometimes because it might prompt them to learn more for one thing or perhaps even further, get outside, maybe do something about it, discover more about the situation. Next thing you know, you're connecting with nature more. So. That's a really cool story. And thanks for sharing that because now I want to look more into this snail as well. So I'll be doing that post interview, Andrew. Yeah. And it was really neat to, um, so the, the, uh, they, it changes so quickly. The river changes so quickly in the seasons. And I didn't realize this. So I, I could, I saw them really clearly, like early, late spring, early summer, it was super easy to pick them up, uh, pick them up in the water. Um, once you started looking, once you knew what you were looking for, you knew exactly what it looked like and your eyes are fixated that very quickly over the uh, season as the summer progressed the bottom of the river um, became more and more abundant with like an algae okay so they were actually blanketed at one point 
by this algae and you could no longer see them. So they had these mechanisms, um, I guess through no fault of their own, benefited them because they were, they were totally covered by this algae. And then by, you know, August or so, it was just impossible. You had no idea that if they were there or not. So it was really cool to observe the daily or weekly changes of the environment that, you know, Morgan and I walked by every single day because our community gardens in, in that area mm-hmm. and day by day and week by week, slowly it changed and you wouldn't really notice it on like a daily level, but then you reflect back or you look at pictures from earlier on and you're like, wow, the river we walk by every day and it looks so different from when it did just a few weeks ago. So there was a lot of revelations made this summer because of this, this little snail that apparently shouldn't have been there. <laughs> I love it. And that's yeah, the man. beauty of living in Southern Ontario, right? We get to experience four seasons in full tilt, um, which come to think of it globally, talking about hemispheres around the world again, not that many areas of the whole world statistically experience four full and relatively even seasons like we do here in Southern Ontario. Um, and that, like you said, it, it provides an opportunity for rapid change in our environments and ecosystems. And I think any Canadians around here who are lucky enough to even just you know, get outside you might be seeing some of the changes to yourself and it is fascinating for example today when i got home from work um, with today's relatively balmy nine degrees down here in niagara woohoo i was hiking around with my sweater out back there's a small stream here um, on my farm and then it turned into a really big stream when everything of course was melting with the snow and the rain and the warmer temperatures and i saw these big beautiful chunks of ice like the size of you know coffee tables dinner tables floating down the creek because they dislodged in today's melt. They're making all these really cool noises and kind of scratching and, you know, clanking over each other. It's really just fascinating to watch. You don't have to be a nature geek to find that fascinating. It was cool. Let's be real. Um, and again, like you said about going outside, you know, in the river in your hometown, had I not just taken opportunity to go outside today and see those changes for myself, um, I, I would miss that experience, that exact phenomenon tomorrow. So to any of your, anyone who's listening right now, Spring starting now literally is the best time to get outside and see those changes. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's it's my this is like late March, early April's maybe my favorite season because um, it, you you start to you can bird watch really well because the leaves the trees don't have leaves yet, so all the birds are starting to come back and they're yeah. exposed. And so it's really neat. Um, you can not only hear them so much, but you can see them and you slowly start to see like the whole world just resurrect from the dead every yeah. year. And um, the, how quickly things like your, your line of sight one day is clear. And then a month, you know, by like the end of May, you've got I've got bushes or, or, or tall grass up to, up to my neck, you know, and yeah. it's, it's amazing. It's just, it's so, it's so freaking cool. And I think um, even more so this, the past year, I've realized how cool it was because the four walls that I live in, given our COVID situation can become kind of monotonous. And I don't care if you're living in a 4,000 square foot mansion, um, you know, your home can get monotonous, but you know, what changes every single day and what continues with or without us, our participation is the outdoors so um it's been a huge um, mental health thing um boost for me and um i think a lot of people are rediscovering that too i was hearing that campsites already this year are like experiencing double or triple the amount of of reservations so i'm i'm happy to to hear that absolutely andrew and i even tried to make a reservation on behalf of my parents funny enough a few days ago and i had to do the good old wait online at 6 59 a.m to hit it at seven 
And I know a lot of people across Ontario had their finger like this on the click button and I didn't make it in. And we accepted that we weren't because it's that competitive. Uh, but I'm not complaining. The point is to reflect on the end of your story there that it's amazing that so many people are reconnecting with nature, you know, even during the pandemic, even if it took a pandemic to say, per se, sorry, to accelerate that connection, at least it's happening. And I feel like to kind of come full circle with invasive species here, the ones I encounter on my tours in Southern Ontario and in general, um, if people are gonna keep appreciating nature for what it is, how it operates, you know, these old growth forests, the wetlands with the humongous trees and interesting plants in them, um, the untouched shoreline of whatever lake you're on or river you're on, these sorts of places in Ontario matter because they inspire people at a psychological level. When you have invasive species move in and it starts to wreck biodiversity, it not only changes you know, the unseen kind of genetic and biological landscape, um, it changes the aesthetic landscape too. And you know, I've been to forests that have been, if you will, claimed or overrun by invasive species. Um, not only are they biologically not the same on paper as if I were to study them as a biologist, you just feel it in your human bones that they're not the same when you're there. You don't have to know even what you're looking at to realize this place is kind of just wrecked. And that's what invasive species can do. They can crowd out, they can outcompete for nutrients, for sunlight, for water, um, for prey, whatever the case may be. Add the fact that, in, that they don't have any natural predators in the area to suppress that. And you have a situation on your hand where the world can be really changed naturally. And for all these people discovering nature now, they better take a good look at it because a lot of these areas are at risk from further invasive species. I think I, uh, I think I found the clip that I'm going to use for this podcast. Cause that was, that was amazing, man. Like you summed it up so perfectly there. Um, which is going to segue nicely into my next question. Um, I find that in this more globalized world that we live in and, and, you know, with things like Twitter and Instagram broadcasting uh, world problems onto our phone and onto our face 24 hours a day, climate change, societal issues, election issue. It doesn't matter what it is. There's so many problems that got, get brought to people on a daily basis. Right. And, and it's 24 hours a day, almost, except for when you're sleeping. It happens and right here. Yeah. It's too easy. Um, and, and what, what I've, what I've noticed and I've heard people speak about is that they get this like existential doom about them. Because they know these problems exist and it's like, well, what can I do? But I'm just one person, right? So I want to try and shed some optimism. I don't want to just say, hey, these, the uh, emerald ash borer is destroying our, our Carolinian forest. Like, what are you going to do? You know, life sucks sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> how, how, does, how does somebody even begin to like approach this problem and, and do anything about it? Are we talking, Andrew, about like the problem of just, you know, in a bigger picture, environmental conservation, protecting our remaining natural spaces and whatnot? That's it. Well, we can go a hundred different directions here, right? So yeah. why don't we keep it high level? Yeah, let's, let's say with okay. what we just went with. Yeah, I was just gauging with the question there. Thanks. And, you know, I think there, there, it's very easy for us, like you said, uh, to have that sense of hopelessness wash over us because the world certainly seems larger, not just through globali globalization in a literal sense, but... Um, you know, we're so connected. Uh, I'm sure your phone's within reach of you right now. Mine's within reach of myself. And that's just like a new normal now, isn't it? And we get 34% bombarded with information. Um, and a lot of the information nowadays uh, tends to be, let's be honest, it can be kind of stressful and tilt more to the negative and thought-provoking side versus the positive and, ah, uh, 
that's easy for my, my mind to digest side, right? But for this segment, I'll, I'll speak to just what I know best about when I'm some sort of expert in, if you will, which is the environmental side of things. Because um, there are a lot of other doom and gloom pictures out there right now that we all don't even need to mention, if you will. But from an environmental perspective, it's, it's really important to realize that it's gonna sound cheesy and cliche off the bat, but you can be influential. Um, and it can be a snowball effect too. I think the most important type of influence that people can cause without even knowing it is generational. So for example, um, with the tour guides I do now and also working for the school board as an outdoor guide, I literally rewind now, um, not trying to make us sound older, Andrew, but almost a full generation, if you will. And I'm now teaching these students of life in the woods, if you will, right? I was once that student. I remember moments outdoors when I was a kid, vaguely, but I remember them enough or I don't perhaps remember the names of these individuals or where exactly I was, but I remember feeling, you know, just absolutely so excited, so enthralled, so curious about my environment. Maybe it was a, you know, a field trip teacher like myself now, or maybe it was a guide on a, on a trip that my parents and I were fortunate to go on or something who showed us the way in a certain way. And those sort of little kind of plants, if you will, they got, they got set in my head and later in life, they sprouted out and I'm kind of jumping back a generation now and going, you know what? I may be able to talk about nature. My passion happens to be for one moment, two minutes, two hours, two days, whatever the scenario is with this individual. Um, but it can be very memorable. I may never see this person again. And then maybe that's a person who grows up and spreads that message and that positive experience to their friends. And the way I like to imagine it, Andrew, is, even though it sounds altruistic, but now you've got this pyramid scheme where I've had this message about nature and conservation and I've been lucky to spread it to these two and they spread it to these four and they spread it to these 16, whatever the case is. And then you just have that many more people in society who grow up who are inspired to one day perhaps stand up against something like Bill 229 here in Ontario. You know, when it comes to voting time, when we see how our land and our resources and natural heritage is being used, how can we protect it? Will we protect it? Will we even care about protecting it altogether? Um, so if that makes any sense, I just think it's important to think that you can have one conversation with someone about something you're passionate about. In my case, and in this conversation, it happens to be nature and our local ecosystems, but you never know what kind of influence you're gonna have. So that's kind of, if you wanna get a drop of hope out of the bucket, Maybe there's one. That's the best I got for you right now, Andrew. Uh, you, you, you made uh, lemonade out of lemons there. That's, that's great, man. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask you two, two random closing questions. Um, what's the craziest encounter with wildlife you've ever had? <laughs> Instant, like just knee jerk to my mind. Uh, when I was filming Hidden Corners, Florida, that particular documentary, um, backstory in Coles Notes version though, is I was lucky to work with juvenile or baby alligators here in southern Ontario for one of my jobs in a professional indoor zoo trained setting when I found the baby alligators in the wild in Florida and gauged to my best ability the distance between them and the mum and the comfort level and I picked one up because I wanted to show it up close to the camera to talk about their unique physical appearances and adaptations as juveniles etc do an educational spiel Long and the short of I picked it up and made a yup, yup, yup noise. And then the mother, 20 feet away tops, um, all of a sudden this 800 pound animal is running on top of the water towards you. And I've never uh, ran faster in my life up that bank. Got the adrenaline going. And Andrew, my buddy and I, my best friend, Dave Tebbett, he was my cameraman for that particular moment. 
we celebrated our life at a local pub in Naples that night. Um, yeah, it was wild. I actually get like a whoo, little adrenaline rush just thinking about it. With all respect to that mother, I didn't mean to startle her. That wasn't my intention, um, but an amazing close encounter with nature certainly happened. That's the one that comes to mind right away. That, uh, hey, you got, you got some cojones, man. That's, uh, <laughs> that's something I'm doing if I'm seeing baby alligators around. But uh, power to you, my friend. Yeah. Well, Hidden Corners is not about doing things the touristy way and that's not what tourists typically do and uh you know even with all the research professionalism past experience whatever you like to call it bundled into one um when it's game time you don't know what's going to happen especially with nature and angry mothers in nature too yeah yeah be careful what you wish for there exactly um speaking (laughs) of wishes my last question to you is if you have a magic wand or if you have a wish and anything about ontario's anything you can change anything about Ontario's management of our overall ecology um what are what are you changing or hopeful to change okay so I've got the magic wand I love that uh analogy so I'm flicking the magic wand I would love Ontario to look at their various regions so you know Niagara Hamilton Toronto Bruce Peninsula Windsor Essex just all the regions in general I would like the province to have those regions look at what net coverage of original forest and original wetlands they have in the percentage. And if it falls below a certain threshold, you need to either A, lock up what that remaining percent is. Um, For example, here in Niagara region, it's less than 10% for both forest and wetland. That's a really shocking statistic. Um, And again, instead of taking a doom and gloom approach, let's look at a recovery approach and say, okay, phew, we've at least got something left within our control. And let's say it's 10% remaining, 20% remaining of these habitats. Each region should lock those up, preserve them for what they are, and don't touch them because you need at least 10 or 20% of wetland and forest coverage to maintain all the ecosystem services that we appreciate in our towns and cities and communities, Andrew. That's flood control, um, you know, city coolant on those hot days, being a carbon sink in the age of climate change, um, flood prevention, flood protection, Uh, biodiversity strongholds, maintaining nutrients in your municipality and the soil. That's what forests and wetlands do for our farms, right? So there's lots going on here. There's lots of very important and obvious reasons to protect these habitats. Let's look at those numbers. And if they're, again, full circle, if there's very little remaining, 10, 20, 30% for conversation's sake, lock those up and protect them. And then even perhaps take a bonus step and look at creating habitat corridors between them where the land is appropriate to do so. And we can do this without being anti-development. We can do this without slowing down development and suburbia growth. That's inevitable. Our human population is growing. So it's not about that, but it's about protecting what we've got left, Andrew. That's what I feel is most important. And now I flick the wand off and hope for the friggin' best. You know, um, that, that, is, that encapsulates so much of, of why I follow what you do so closely because you're in a world that I don't really dabble in a a whole lot and I find you to be um, incredibly reasonable in an age in which you know somebody else might hear that question and that with less experience or maybe they have a political agenda or social agenda and they might say oh we got to ban fossil fuels or or we got to stop climate change and it's like well what do you what do you mean by that I don't I don't know if I understand like okay how Right. And, and you, you, you almost, you never go, I've never seen you go there. You, you always go to something very concrete that I can wrap my head around. Like let's measure this where it was. Let's 
stop it from degrading anymore and then work on ways in which we can make it better through that vis-a-vis these ideas and these implementations, these, these very big existential threats like climate change will take care of themselves. If, you know, through our, and it's not just going to be, uh, let's say, uh, uh, restoration of, of our ecology, but also through, you know, let's say green technologies, whatever that means, uh, more broadly, right? So I, I really, I've, I've always enjoyed uh, that about, about how you approach these, these situations. And you're a good follow on across all your platforms for exactly that, that it's, it's always like very actionable advice. Um, and, and I always, obviously learn a lot of things too. So um, there you go. I've, I've boosted your ego once again tonight. <laughs> again it's water but cheers to that Andrew. You're, you're too kind i don't know if they can see me blushing through this virtual screen stuff but hey man um likewise to you I, again i'm just happy where we both um have passions for discussions i think that's a nice common point yeah. professionally right now but I, I think as friends you know as well andrew we we both have a passion for creating discussions hearing other people's opinions and i have to do that in my world of nature and ecosystems and environmental protection too I can't be unrealistic with uh, the forces that be in the world, such as population growth, um, big government decisions, et cetera. Uh, you can be influential, but you can't change those things sometimes. And you can't do it overnight, certainly. Yeah. So I think having that grassroots movement and energy is, is important. Um, people have inspired me in the past, and now I'm, hope, I'm, I'm hoping I'm doing the same. And uh, again, it all comes down to um, you know, our local species of tree frogs, snakes, um, mammals, whatever is living on the escarpment in our wetlands that they deserve a rightful space with us here too. And we can enjoy that with them. That sounds like a great place to end, man. Um, you, you've, uh, you've provided some really good points uh, for consideration. So thanks. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll link to, to your appropriate pages in the, in the show notes and whatnot. But uh, once again, I want I to thank you for making the time this evening. It was a great talk. Thanks, Andrew. I really appreciate being here. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation, however it happens. We'll do it again, man. Okay. Looking forward to it, my friend. Take care. Take care, dude. Bye-bye. Cheers.